The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelations 3 to 13. An angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your words. Behold, I set before you an open door, which is no one able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you kept my word and have denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I loved you. Because you have kept my word and patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write him on the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has the ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Cool. Good. Good to see you guys. Uh, welcome, especially if you're new. So glad you're here. Uh, we at Citizens exist to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him, and so we're so glad you've decided to worship with us. Uh, welcome back. If this is not your first time, I'm always really, really grateful to the Lord for returning guests because we make you be silent for two minutes and then talk to strangers for two minutes, and you come back. And so that's a sign that the Lord is doing something with you, uh, and I'm really glad uh, you're here. Uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, that passage that Tay just read for us, Romans chapter 3. Uh, you're going to want a Bible in front of you. Let me just encourage you, uh, if you are distractible like me, maybe not your phone, maybe just a, a real Bible in your hands, that'd be helpful. Uh, Romans chapter 3, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it together. Lord, we love you, and yet so unlike how much you love us. We're just sensing from you, even as we sing, Lord, this reminder of the reality that we have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, and yet everything to gain. And so, Lord, we come before you with no other posture available to us but humility. Everything we have is a gift. From the breath in our lungs to the people that you give us to worship with to your everlasting and always true word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take it and do what you've always done, thousands of years. Take your word by the power of your spirit and put it into our hearts such that we're changed. Let us learn from this church this morning, from this letter, from these truths. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. 
Well, we've got two weeks left in our series that we've been in over the course of this fall, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. So just by way of recap, uh, for one almost final time, John, the last living apostle of Jesus, is in exile for preaching the gospel on the island of Patmos. He's in prison for being a follower and preacher of Jesus, and he has this vision from the Holy Spirit, and so he writes letters from Jesus to these seven ancient churches in these seven ancient cities that make up the old Roman postal route. And so we've just been working our way through the postal route, looking at each letter, asking what do letters to ancient churches have to say to us today? And we're turning our attention this morning to the second to last letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, as a city, held a prominent place in the ancient world. It was referred often to many as the gateway to the east. So what would happen, and you can see it on the map, is that folks would come in to the port of Smyrna carrying goods from either North Africa or Rome, and they would travel on a highway that ran for just about 100 miles directly east from Smyrna until they reached Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was kind of the last pit stop before you entered into the rest of Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey, the known world at that time. And so Philadelphia was kind of this stomping grounds before you headed into the rest of the world, and it was a place that was kind of the, the last stop before you carried these Roman ideas, Roman gods, and Roman goods into Asia Minor. And so it was a city, the gateway to the east, strategically located for the spreading of Roman culture and goods. And so Jesus is writing a letter to a church in this city, calling them to use that strategic location, not for the spreading of Roman ideas and Roman goods, but for the spreading of the gospel. And that's where we're going to head today as we look at this letter together. So let's pick it up. The letter to Philadelphia. I know I say it wrong. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. So if you like to underline, highlight, mark, key of David, that's really important. We'll get to it in a second. Who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. So once again, we're starting the letter to the church with a reminder about Jesus. We see three things in particular. The first two seem fairly obvious, that he's holy right? He's pure. He's set apart. He's righteous. And the second thing we see is that he's true. He's trustworthy and faithful that nothing Jesus promises will fail to come to pass. But I want to focus on that third phrase. He has the key of David. So this is a reference back to a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 22 in the Old Testament. And what it's referring to, the key of David, is Jesus's rule or sovereignty over salvation. So track with me here. Having the key of David means Jesus rules over the kingdom of David. And the kingdom of David is another way the scriptures refer to the kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus comes through the family line of David. Psalms say that he sits on the throne of David and he rules and reigns over the kingdom of David, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus starts the letter to Philadelphia, I have the key of David. He is saying, I am the one who controls entrance into the kingdom of God. You don't get into the kingdom of God apart from Jesus. You don't get forgiveness of sins. You don't get salvation. You don't get life forever with God except through Christ. He is the key. He is the door. This is what he says about himself in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Jesus has the key of David, meaning he is the only way to enter into God's forever kingdom. Good works cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Sincere intentions to be a good person cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Generic faith in an idea called faith cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Faith in Jesus as the door and the key and the holder of entrance into the kingdom. Faith in him. And the one who holds the key says this to Philadelphia, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Let's just talk about this for a second. So the one who has the keys says to this church, I set before you an open door. Now, this idea of an open door is one used throughout the scriptures to refer to opportunities for missions and evangelism, for the sharing of the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. When you hear about an open door in scripture, it always refers to sharing the gospel with those who do not yet know Christ. Let me give you a few examples. Acts chapter 14. Luke writes, and when they, they being Paul and Barnabas, arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had, notice this, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Or later in Colossians chapter 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So in these first two verses, notice what's happening. Jesus looks at the church in Philadelphia, writing him this letter, and he says, I'm the one who has the keys into the kingdom of God. I am the one people must believe in in order to be saved, and I know your works, I know your faithfulness, and so I'm opening up doors for you to take the good news about me to the world, and no one can shut it, and no one can stop you. Same page so far? Good? So the city of Philadelphia, strategically located to bring as the gateway to the east Roman goods and ideas, Jesus says, I'm going to use for the spreading of my gospel. Here's how Pastor Chuck Swindoll says it. He says, as the geographic gateway to the east, Philadelphia sat at the crossroads of several languages, cultures, and people groups. From an evangelistic and missionary perspective, this dynamic, diminutive, that means not very powerful, we'll get to that in a second, church had great opportunities for ministry. Christ is inviting the church in Philadelphia, leverage the strategic place I've put you for the advancement of the gospel both near and far both in Philadelphia and to the rest of Asia Minor. I'm opening doors for you to join me in the advancement of my kingdom. And here's the biblical reality. This is not going to be a surprise if you've been around for any length of time. The invitation Jesus is giving to Philadelphia is the same invitation he gives to us. I'm opening doors for you to leverage the strategic place I've put you to take the gospel both near and far. That's the invitation to this church, and that's the invitation to you if you are a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the invitation, expectation, and command to step into opportunities to share the gospel both near and far. Tracking? That's the command of Jesus. He expects. This is not like a super elite Christian thing. This is not like a specialist of Christianity thing. This is not like wants you to figure out how to defeat all sin and your perfect forever thing. This is all of us thing. All of us stepping into the God-given call and command to be ministers of the gospel. It's the call on the church of Philadelphia. 
I've opened a door of ministry for you, and that's the call on Citizens Church. I've opened a door of ministry for you. And so here's the question that I want us to spend our time wrestling with as we work through the rest of the passage. Here's the question for us today. Are you willing to join Jesus in the advancement of his kingdom? Are you willing to join Jesus in the advancement of his kingdom? Do you see the open doors Jesus has given you to take the gospel both near and far? And are you willing in courage and faith to walk through those open doors? That's what that question is. Do you see the open doors? Do you see the opportunities for gospel evangelism and advancement near and far around you? And are you willing in courage and faith to walk through them no matter the cost? Let me just break down the two parts of that question. First, do you see the open doors? Do you see the open doors of evangelistic opportunity God has put around you? Do you see the open doors that he's giving you to step in to advance the kingdom with him? Let me just pastorally help us see some open doors. So here's what I want to do. Just want to take a minute or two to zoom out and we'll kind of shrink the circle to show you open doors for gospel opportunity Jesus has given you as his people. We'll just start with the world. We'll start big picture. We'll start Broad. Let me give you some statistics about the gospel need in our world today. This comes from a group known as the Joshua Project. They work in particular to help people engage missionally with what they call unreached people groups. According to the Joshua Project, there are 16,000 people groups in the world today. So a people group can be defined as a group with shared history, language, beliefs, and identity. So don't think like a nation, think groups within a nation. They identify around 16,000 people groups in the world today. Of those 16,000, 7,000 are what they would call unreached people groups. What it means to be unreached is that less than 2% of your population has faith in Jesus. The estimated number of people that make up those 7,000 people groups is 3 billion with a B people. That is just under, a little bit under half of the world's population today. Of those 7,000, 3,000 are what they would call unengaged and unreached people groups. That means that those people groups have no churches, have no believers living among them, have no missionaries, no Bible translation, no way to access the good news of the gospel. Put it into perspective, that's about 20 to 25% of the world's population. Somewhere between one and a half to two billion people have no chance today of hearing the good news of Jesus or access to the gospel. That's the global open door for us as followers of Jesus. Let me shrink it down just a little bit. Let's skip our nation. Let's just go to our city. So there's a group in our city known as For Charlotte. They exist to, according to their mission, unite the church and transform the city. And they release every two or three years or so something they call the State of Our City Report. It's just demographic data about our city, about different needs, both gospel needs as well as other just tangible needs in the city, like education and foster care and race relations and things like that. Let me just give you, they just released this a few weeks ago. Let me give you some of the latest updated stats on the nature of our city in regards to the gospel. So between 2016 and 2021, the churched population in our city. And that's a low bar. They say churched is you go one every six months. You go one time every six months. It's not like a high bar of church. It's just like, do you show up twice a year? You can be in the church population. In the last five years, from 2016 to 2021, that number declined from 49% to 37%. Last year, 
they estimated that about 50% of our city can be defined as religious nuns. That means they have no affiliation with any religion. Just to put a number on it, that's 1.35 million people. Experts say that because of our need for the gospel in our city, that we would need to plant 40 new churches every year in our city just to keep up with population growth, which some people say is upwards of 100 people a day moving into Charlotte Metro. People ask us all the time, why did you plant in Charlotte? 40 new churches a year. That's almost one a week just to keep up with the people that are moving here that need to hear about Jesus. Let me shrink it down even further. What about your life? So that's the open doors in the world. There's open doors in our city. What about the open doors all around you? What about your neighbors? Do you know their stories? Do you know their pain points? Do you know their their joys? Do you know their names? Do you know what they're going through? What about your coworkers? That one coworker that for some reason has come to take a liking to you and keep stopping by your cubicle even though you have a ton of work to do? You're like, they just want to be my friend. Is that an open door the Lord's leading you towards? What about your friends or your gym buddies or your trivia team or your playdate moms or your kids? Right? One of the responsibilities for those of us who have children is that we are supposed to evangelize to our children. They don't know Jesus yet. My kid's three. She doesn't know Jesus. So I'm called to train her and to teach her what it means to follow Christ. Church, do you see the open doors God has and is putting before you? And then here's the second part of the question. Are you willing and courage and faith to walk through them? Here's where I think the letter to Philadelphia gets really helpful for us. Because in my experience, both as a a pastor and as a Christian, the same call as you to take the gospel to the world, I think some excuses start to arise in my heart. Like just some general, like I'm hearing these things and there's just some things that are starting to well up of why this maybe doesn't apply to me or, or why this isn't for me or whatever the case may be. And I think if we examine a little bit further the letter to Philadelphia, we'll see some of these excuses and Jesus' answer to these excuses rise up. So here's what I want to do. I want to work through the rest of the letter, and I want to just show us two excuses we give for why we don't engage in the open doors of the gospel around us, and then two answers Jesus gives to those excuses. All right, number one, excuse number one, I'm too weak to share the gospel. Excuse number one we give for why we don't engage in the mission of God is that I'm too weak to share the gospel. Weak's not a great word for it. I just didn't have anything else to to say it, so just... This is what I mean. I mean that, like, I just became a Christian six months ago, and I don't know anything about the Bible. How am I supposed to help others know who Jesus is? Or I have never been to seminary. I have no formal theological training. How am I supposed to answer the hard questions about evil and suffering and the Bible and all of these things my friends might ask? Or I'm just, I'm socially nervous. I'm socially awkward. I'm socially anxious. Like, how am I supposed to engage with new people and build friendships? Like, just an overall feeling, whatever you're going to put in there of just, I'm weak. I'm afraid. I don't know enough. And this is an excuse the Philadelphians could have used as well. Look back at verse 8. This is my favorite verse in this passage. I love it. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I love that. He's like, hey, by the way, there's open doors for evangelism all around you. I'm opening the doors wide for you to take the gospel both to your city and to the world. And don't worry, I know what you're going to say. Why us? We're weak. We don't have a lot going on. We're like 15 or 20 people at best. We've got no great lighting, no worship stuff, no kids ministry. Like, how are we supposed to do it? Don't worry, I know you have little power. Like, I love that. Jesus doesn't try to talk them out of it. He doesn't try to like boost their self-esteem. Like, don't worry, you think you're weak, but actually you're strong. 
And he doesn't say like, hey, don't worry. Like I'm gonna, no, he just says, you're weak. I know you're weak. I know you have but little power. I'm not trying to puff you up. I'm not trying to talk you into thinking you're something you're not. You're weak. I love that. I'd rather him say that than some of the other stuff he said in the other letters. <laughs> I'll take weak, right? But here's the good news, church. The power for evangelism was never supposed to come from us. And notice what he says. Verse 8. I know you have but little power. I know you're not strong. I know you don't have it all together. I know you're stumbling around. I know you probably won't have answers to questions. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And what does he say? He says, you're weak. You've got little power. That's a fact. And yet, I'm opening the door because you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Here's the reality. The excuse is, I can't engage in evangelism. I can't share the gospel. I'm weak. And Jesus says, I know. The power was never meant to come from you. Here's the answer. Our power comes from Jesus and his word. That's the good news of the scriptures. He says, I'm opening a door, but not because you're strong or awesome or mighty or intelligent or well-spoken, but because you've kept my word and not denied my name, because my word and my name are the power for the gospel going forth. It's his word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and divides the heart. It's his word, which calls forth in Ezekiel to make dead bones live again. It's his word which goes out and raises up dead men to walk in the newness of life. It's the power of Christ who overcame the enemy, conquered Satan, sin, and death, and rules that draws people to himself. Not you and I. We're weak. The power is in Christ and his word. That's why every Sunday when I get up here or Garrison gets up here, whoever's preaching gets up here, we come up here with confidence. Not because we're going to say a bunch of good things, but because the power is in the word to save to sanctify, to change, to convict, to lead to repentance. Christ working through his spirit and his word. That's what he's done for thousands of years. That's what he was done in Philadelphia, and that's what he wants to do through us. And the beautiful thing is that it's not just his power despite our weaknesses, it's his power through our weaknesses. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at this. We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the greatest news to ever exist in jars of clay, breakable, fragile clay pots to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jesus doesn't just use us despite our weaknesses. He chooses to use us in our weaknesses to show that it was never about us in the first place. It's about him and his glory and his power. And so when you're stepping into that conversation, you're stepping into your workplace, or you're stepping in to engage a lost person, friend, coworker, family member with the gospel, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Jesus says, you're exactly where I need you to be, because that's where I'm going to work in power. If you thought you had to figure it out, you're in more trouble, because <laughs> it's when you're weak that I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to work through you to show the power was never yours. It was always mine. That's excuse number one. Excuse number two. I'm not in a season where I can share the gospel. I'm not in a season where I can share the gospel. The first is an excuse with me. The second is an excuse from my circumstances. It's just not the right season. It's not the right time. I'm busy. Work has me here, there, and everywhere. I've got small children. I just retired. I'm trying to focus on me for the rest of the next season. I'm going through difficult things. Whatever label we want to put on the season... Whatever we need to do, it becomes an excuse for why, quote, mission just doesn't really work for me or my schedule right now. 
And this is easily an excuse the church of Philadelphia could have made. So just like in Smyrna, we find out in verse 9 that they too are facing what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan. They too are being betrayed by the Jewish community in this city. Now, again, let me just be really clear. This is not, when Jesus calls the Jewish people in this town the synagogue of Satan, this is not anti-Semitic language. This is Jesus pointing out that these Jewish people in Philadelphia the friends, the family members who would have one point been in close relationship with these Christians, now that the Christians are professing faith, they're doing the work of Satan by turning on them, betraying them, and ratting them out and handing them over to Roman rulers to be persecuted. And so it would be easy, because of what the church in Philadelphia is going through, to shrink back from the mission of God. Like, you want me to share the gospel with my neighbor? I'm just trying not to get killed today. Like, I, I don't know what you want from me. I'm like, best day is if I don't die for my faith. Like, I'm just trying not to get handed over to the Romans. I'm trying not to like, this is, I'm just trying to live, let alone actually step into the mission of God. And yet look at what Jesus tells them in Revelation 3 verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, notice, that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. All right, now there's a ton of debates about these two verses and what they mean with end times theology and the rapture and all that kind of stuff. Another conversation for another day. I just want to show you what I think Jesus is emphasizing here, which is this. Because of their faithfulness to patiently endure, to walk through open doors, to hold fast to Christ and his word, even in suffering, Jesus says, I'm going to use that in some mysterious, powerful way to show your enemies how much I love you. Like, I'm going to be with you in this. Whatever this suffering is, whatever this season is, I'm going to be with you in it. And then in a mysteriously powerful, glorifying to me way, I'm going to use it for my glory and your good. In other words, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Though the excuse might be, I'm just not in a good season to engage in the mission of God. Here's Jesus' answer. He uses our seasons for kingdom purposes. I just, it's not the right time. And Jesus says, it's the exactly right time for what I want to do through this. Here's what I want us to, to consider when it comes to these seasons. What if our season is not something meant to keep us from mission, but rather something God wants to use, among many things, to propel the mission of God forward? What if he actually wants to work in the brokenness, work in the sorrow, to use that and turn it for his glory and our good and use it for the advancement of his gospel? I think about Paul and Silas in Acts 16, right? They're in jail for sharing the gospel. Very easy to be like, not a good season, guys. We're literally in jail. Not a good season for evangelism, not a good season for worship, not a good season. What do they do? In jail, Acts 16, right? They start singing, start praising the Lord in their circumstance, and God uses it to save the jailer and to save other guards. He uses their season and their willingness to praise God in their season to advance the kingdom of God forward. And so just consider with me, what if, what if, what if, this is for me, what if your season of little kid craziness is not an excuse out of the mission of God, but actually a chance for God to open doors into the lives of other families with young kids for the sake of sharing the gospel? What if your season of work, travel, chaos, God can actually use to open doors into the lives of your coworkers for the sake of sharing the gospel? We gotta spend five hours together on a plane every other week anyway. Might as well talk about something useful. 
What if your season of suffering and pain, God can actually use to open doors into the lives of your neighbors and friends and family members who have suffered in similar ways? Maybe what you thought was going to be the crushing blow of your life, God actually wants to use to open doors into people's hearts that you could never imagine. Think about the words of one of my favorite hymns. It's a more recent one by a musician writer named Isaac Wardell. It's taken directly from the words of Psalm 126, and this is what he says. He says, although we are weeping, Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom for the day you will reap them. Your sheaves we will carry. Lord, please do not tarry because all those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. Although we are weeping, Lord, help us keep sowing the seeds of your kingdom. So I ask you, are are you willing to join Jesus in the advancement of his kingdom? That's the question Philadelphia poses to us. Do you see the open doors Jesus has given you to take the gospel both near and far? And are you willing and courage and faith to walk through with them? And here's the promise. For those who hold fast to Christ and to his word, who are faithful to his mission, even in the midst of the seasons, even though we're weak with little power, here's what he promises. Verse 11, I am coming soon. How much of our lives would be different if we just believed that, (laughs) lived in light of that? So hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." We started today by talking about Philadelphia's strategic location. It was actually known for something else. It was known for being a place constantly under threat of earthquakes. So twice in the, in the century leading up to this letter, both 17 AD and 60 AD, the city was devastated by two massive earthquakes. Widespread destruction, loss of life, just complete chaos and devastation. And yet both times, one building in the city did not fall. And that was a temple. The temple and its pillars never gave way. And so both times when the city would emerge out of the chaos of the earthquake, there was the same temple and these pillars that did not crumble. And and Jesus is using that and pointing to that illustration, pointing to that one temple with the pillars that did not crumble in the earthquake, saying, for those who hold fast to me, who press into the open doors with courage and faith, even in their weakness and their seasons, they will be like a pillar in the temple of God. They will not fall. Now, that doesn't mean here on earth we will not experience trouble. That does not mean engaging in the mission of God will make life go easier for us. Often it means it'll go harder. This doesn't mean that we're going to be protected from every earthly danger. What it does mean is that in that temple, in that new Jerusalem, which Jesus says comes down from God out of heaven, we who trust in Christ will stand forever. And so Jesus starts this letter to this weak flailing, stumbling church and says, listen, I have the keys to the kingdom. And he ends it by saying, I'm coming again soon. So walk through the open door. Walk through the opportunities I'm giving you. Keep your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on the reality of Christ and who he is and what he has and what he does. Believe at a soul level that no one comes to him except through 
Christ, that no one comes to the Father except through the one who holds the keys. And then let that spur you on to go. He's coming soon. He's the only way of salvation. I have no other option but to get busy in his mission. And that's the invitation of the letter to Philadelphia. Jesus rules and he reigns and he's coming again. Behold, he has set before us, Citizens Church, an open door for the advancement of the gospel near and far. Will we with courage see it and step through it? Knowing that he who conquers will be like a pillar in the temple. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we need you. Lord, you've given us open doors, Lord. We, we want to have eyes to see the gospel opportunities you've given us, Lord. The, the family members and the friends, the neighbors, the coworkers near, but also our city, our nation, and the, the nations. Lord, would your word break us for the people across the world who do not know you, who do not walk with you, who have no access to the gospel who are part of those 7,000 groups with little gospel witness or those 3,000 groups with no gospel witness. Lord, would you break our hearts for them? Would you break our hearts for the open doors you are opening to us for the advancement of the gospel around the world? Lord, we need you to put that burden on us, Lord, and to walk with us in power that we might step into the mission you have for us. Lord, thank you for the Church of Philadelphia, for their faithful witness to stand firm. Thank you that many from that church are celebrating with you forever now because of your faithfulness to them. I pray we would be encouraged by their faithfulness. We love you, we need you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.